0: Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the fourth installment in STS's 2021 webinar series. This series runs every month and features presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. The topic for today's session is the resilient surgeon, strategies to be your best self in and out of the OR no matter what. We want to make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. To this end, you may utilize the chat feature and enter questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The panelists will try to respond to as many questions as possible. Please note, this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our moderator for this session, Dr. Michael Mattis. Dr. Mattis is a retired professor of thoracic surgery at the University of Minnesota and the chair of the STS Task Force on Wellness. Dr. Mattis, let me turn it over to you to introduce our panel.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I'm very excited to welcome you all to the Resilient Surgeon webinar webinar tonight. About three months ago, I was sincerely, and I mean sincerely honored to be asked by Shanda Blackman to chair a newly formed task force on wellness for the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. With the help of others, we've assembled an all-star team including the people that you see on your screen here And from left to right on the top is Wayne Sotil, a psychologist. His daughter, Rebecca Fallon, also a psychologist. Brian Ferguson, a retired Navy SEAL. Loretta Aramwaisi, who's at the City of Hope and a thoracic surgeon. Betty Tong at Duke Medical Center, another thoracic surgeon. And Joe Durrani, the past president of the STS. Uh, And Kevin Lobdell, who's at uh, Atrium Health in North Carolina. And finally, Cindy Harrington, who's uh, at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Our goal tonight is to give you an overview of some of the content you can expect to see coming your way over the next several months, including a new podcast, which we're very excited about called The Resilient Surgeon, which we're planning to start on July 1st. I wanna start by giving a brief talk about the resilience bank account and, and habits and how important they are in our lives and then I'll turn it over to the other uh, guests. I'd like to start with a quote from a book, a favorite book of mine called uh, The Five Invitations. And that book was written by a man who was the previous uh, chair, head of the uh, Zen Hospice Center in in, uh, San Francisco. Okay, here's the quote. The habits of our lives have a powerful momentum that propels us toward the moment of our death. The obvious question arises, What habits do we want to create? Our thoughts are not harmless. Thoughts manifest as actions, which in turn develop into habits and our habits ultimately harden into character. Our unconscious relationship to thoughts can shape our perceptions, trigger reactions, and predetermine our relationship to the events of our lives. And this is an observation that he made after years of working with dying patients in the Zen Hospice Center. And you realize just how critically important the habits that we acquire are to the, to the way that our lives unfold. Now, as cardiothoracic surgeons, you know, we undergo seven to 10 years of full-time dedicated training to become a surgeon. And after graduation, with dedication and commitment, we can become master surgeons. Now, during training, we have to master the essential technical and clinical skills, which are the building blocks or the scaffolding upon which our evolution into becoming a master surgeon depends. These individual skills like tying knots, sewing, handling tissues, clinical assessment, they all contribute to the desired goal, becoming a master surgeon. And we all know what it's like to watch the beautiful symphony of all these separate and smaller level skills working together that make an operation so easy, look so easy to the uninitiated. Now, Unfortunately, there is no training program for becoming a master of living and being your best self day after day, no matter what. Instead, most of us end up with a personal operating system filled with habits and beliefs that have been drilled into us by our family, our career, and other major life experiences. And we end up thinking things like, well, that's just who I am. In my experience, surgical training installs several habits onto each of our personal operating systems, like the say yes to everything habit no matter what, and the discipline habit to keep going no matter what, and the be strong habit so you can pretend you're okay even when you're not no matter what, and of course, the self-sufficiency habit so you can handle everything on your own no matter what. Now don't get me wrong, these four habits drilled into my personal operating system serve me extremely well, and they played a huge role in my success. But sometimes the habits of our personal operating system serve us well, and sometimes not. When they don't serve us well, we can end up in a nearly imperceptible, slow downward spiral. They can lead to low-grade misery, chronic anxiety, loneliness, depression, burnout, addiction, or even suicide. And even recently, I was just told the other day about a surgeon at UCSF that hung himself. But if we take control of programming our personal operating system, we can pull ourselves into an upward spiral that will lead to better sleep, more energy, less stress, and more gratitude for things in our lives and real meaningful connections with ourselves and with others all of which leads to what most of us really want in life, purpose, contentment, joy, and a good quality of mind. So what's the solution? Design your own personal residency to learn the foundational skills that will lead you to become a master at living and to become your best self day after day, no matter what. And the skills that are the foundation of the master of living residency, the eight habits of the resilience bank account. The first crucial habit of the resilience bank account is the ability to say no to some things. So you have time for the things that really matter to you, including the self-care so often lacking in our high-octane surgical lives. As James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits notes, no is like a time credit. You can spend that block of time in the future. Yes is like a time debt. You have to repay that commitment at some point. The next three habits, a diet low in refined sugar and foods, seven to eight hours of sleep, and regular exercise are crucial to keep the plant, physical plant in top shape and to give our cognitive and emotional shifts the reserves to handle rough waters. The other four habits are meditation for presence and focus, self-compassion for rapid emotional recovery and learning, gratitude for proper perspective, and meaningful connection with others for support and realistic guidance. I'd like you to imagine yourself as a patient being wheeled into the operating room for a major operation. Of course, you'd want a great operative team. You want the anesthesiologist, the scrub nurse, the tech, and the surgeon to work together to create a working milieu that would make your operation hum. And if a major problem did occur, the ability to handle the complications smoothly. I view the habits of meditation, self-compassion, gratitude, and connection, as our personal mental operative team. They work together synergistically to make everyday life hum, and when the inevitable complications of life arise, they make the difference in how smoothly and successfully those complications are handled, both for you and for other people in your orbit. The beauty of the resilience bank account is that you can start small with one habit and most of, with most of them, except sleep, require little, if any time, commitment, and they really work. The habits of the resilience bank account give us the best shot to be our best self day after day, no matter what. With the right intention, discipline, and commitment, the same skills it takes to become a master surgeon, we all can master the art of living. Okay, our next speaker is Brian Ferguson, uh, who is the founder and CEO of Arena Labs. And Brian's Brian's why in life is to live a life of impact and service by solving really hard problems. Brian was inculcated with a commitment to service by his mother, Martha, who you can see here in this picture with his father, who was a nurse at the Lakewood Hospital in Cleveland which later became part of the Cleveland Clinic. Brian saw his mother live through the great days and the hard days of her career, and her influence drove him to pursue a life of service to others. After graduating from the London School of Economics, he became a presidential appointee in the Office of Secretary of Defense, focusing on US national and security defense policymaking. He'd always wanted to serve in the military, and his experience post 9 11 working in the Pentagon alongside so many from the special operations community led him to enlist in Officers Candidate School in the Navy and apply to the Navy SEALs. Ryan made it through Buds and deployed to Afghanistan and various parts of the Middle East. In his final year in the Navy, he spent one year in Hawaii working on a project dedicated to merging new technologies such as physiologic monitoring and virtual reality with human performance in underwater special operations. After discharge, Brian founded Arena Labs, a company dedicated to merging these technologies with human performance in the medical arena, especially in the world of surgery, and has worked extensively with the Department of Cardiac Surgery in the Cleveland Clinic, where it all started for him with his mother, Martha. Brian, it's all yours.
2: Thanks, Dr. Mattis. Uh, it, you know, maybe, maybe uh, an overused term here, but, but really humbling for me uh, to be back with STS. I, I've been privileged since Arena Labs started and in, in my foray beyond the, a life in national security in the military into that of medicine. Uh, uh, there are a number of surgeons here who've been phenomenal friends and mentors as we've been building into what we call high performance medicine. Among those, certainly Dr. Mattis, but Dr. Labdell, uh, Kevin Labdell, Dr. Nick's Madeira. Tom Wynn, just a, a lot of folks who are pioneering. I, I think, like those of you on this call, thinking about uh, what, what is the next stage of really surgeon development and, and pursuit of mastery look like. Um, so, as Dr. Mattis mentioned, you know, I, I've I've had an unlikely path here uh, in into healthcare. And in that photo he showed, it's it's a classic image um, of my mom and that uh, you know the, the old school nursing outfit, my dad and his pleather jacket. Uh, but you can see her beaming there, and and I often share a photo of my, fam- my, my family's dining room table. And, and classically, having grown up in Cleveland, we had dinner together often, at, you know, nearly every night. And, and my mom, despite working really long hours in the operating room, really took pride in that. But I had very vivid memories of coming home and her either, you know, bringing that energy and excitement of an amazing day or the opposite into the table. And my mom was not a dramatic person, but she just cared so much about her craft. I call that the inspired soul. I saw this when I was in the military, and I certainly see it in healthcare. If you think about the reason you came into your craft and you reverse yourself back to that young man or young woman who was making that decision to enter a field of service in medicine, like that harnessing that moment, it's a it's a powerful emotion. And if we don't as leaders protect that for ourselves and for our teams, uh, it, it can turn into in certainly to, to complex outcomes. And that that really brings me into how I stumbled into your world. Uh, Again, I was in Hawaii and I had the privilege of building this innovation cell that was looking at human performance and cardiothoracic surgery ends up having a lot of parallels to that as special operations. And so having been from Cleveland, I ended up back at the Cleveland Clinic Heart and Vascular Institute and was really fortunate to spend a day with with several of the surgeons there, one in particular, Doug Johnston. And I often tell the story that on one hand, I was blown away by your world of modern technological advancement in thoracic surgery. On the other hand, I was astounded That here you are putting yourselves in the same high stakes, often life and death circumstances. And yet people aren't given the tools that we give to not just Navy SEALs and special operators, but all parts of the military to people who perform in elite athletics and those who are in the creative arts. And so when I started, I, I thought about my own journey where I when I entered into basic SEAL training, some of the first things I learned were how do I manage fear and anxiety? And how do I incrementally over time as things get more and more challenging and there is more fear, how do I learn to not only lean into that, but as a leader, how do I recognize that in my team? And so as I dug more into modern healthcare, I realized that here's this field of extraordinarily dedicated people who are equipped to the max with technical skill. And yet the things that make you successful, not just in the moment of a particular procedure and your team successful, but over the arc of a career, those things are, are generally not taught. And those are the things we're called human factors in performance. And, and moreover, as now four years in, what has struck me is that, you know, when I when I think back to that moment of, you know, my mom coming home and that 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 same wearing that the day's stress or successes, modern medicine has just exacerbated in those challenges because of technology and what we're asking of clinicians. Uh, and so the view at Arena Labs, as we stumbled in this, was how might we bring those tools to those of you who are on the front lines of healthcare in the same way that we train elite military professional athletes in, in, in the creative arts. And so Dr. Mattis had asked me to, to just share a little bit about what we're up to. And I think, you know, more importantly, in, in the wake of COVID, we could have never imagined how all of this would evolve because that narrative prior to COVID, would always struck me as people would tell me that burnout was a massive challenge. And in the same breath, turn around and the only data that people had on burnout were self-reported annual surveys. One of the things that was viscerally impactful for me when I was in early SEAL training was being outfitted with sensors. So that I started to understand when I felt fear and anxiety, what that looked like in terms of a physiological signature. So I started to recognize my own stress. And by having that data and understanding it, I could begin to employ the tools I was trained with in order to be calm. As it turns out, you see a very similar arc in how we train, you know, other disciplines that are high pressure and high risk. And so, just briefly, and, and then I think in in our discussion afterwards, we'll, we'll be glad to, to answer any questions or if those who want to follow up. But you know, what we've done and, and built here is really first and foremost, how might we think about rather than recreating the wheel? How do we think about bringing a platform and those experts who maybe you know in the, in the center of the screen? here see how how fighter pilots use visualization. So that's commander John Hiltz, active duty F-18 pilot in the Navy, who's a blue angel. And he's talking about how visualization saved his life in an engine failure in their cockpit. And then afterwards, he's going to come back and say, okay, for those of you on the front lines of healthcare, not just if you're a thoracic surgeon, maybe you support in the operating room in a role as a technician or a nurse, how might we take that same schematic of visualization and begin to apply that for you in your day-to-day? And this is on the front end, Dr. Mattis is mentioning these tools that we think about for resilience. They're readily available again, rather than recreating them, how might we scalably deliver these to your phone in between cases on your transit to or from work? And then more importantly, I think, you know, as what I know all of you being scientists implicitly, it comes back to data. And so what we start to do is the same thing that we do for other high performers. While you're on the platform, you're going to have a sensor and the sensor is not to monitor you 24 seven. It's blinded to your leadership. Instead, it's meant to give you an understanding of your lifestyle. And it's not to say, hey, go work out or or something that sounds sort of Pollyannish or out of touch. Instead, it's how do we think about the realities of your lifestyle? First and foremost, show you your data as it relates to sleep. How much time did you spend in bed? How restful are you reporting day in and day out the the stress of your day or, or how rested you feel? And so we ask you these daily performance reflections, and then we combine that with the objective data that we're pulling off of your sensor. And that sensor, since it, it can be worn on the bicep, you, you've got it on in the operating room. And that way we start to get these signatures in and out of you know a day, a week, et cetera. And we start to learn some really interesting things. As you can imagine, this for the individual can be a powerful tool because even seasoned clinicians, just like seasoned Navy SEALs, often have not understood at a very basic level what their physiological profile looks like related to stress, sleep, and recovery. But far more importantly, what becomes profound is for your team or your residents, how might we look at what what the beginning of the week looks like towards the end of the week? And one of the things we see across the board when we look at thoracic teams, whether that's in residency or attendings, is that, on as you might all know, on Sunday, you tend to be really well-rested and you've got a great profile in terms of sleep. But by Friday, we see people, quote-unquote, in the red. And so you've got a decreased... Your HRV tends to be low, very little sleep, reporting higher levels of stress. And so that simple data outlay is for the first time you start to think about driving a smarter understanding of the individual clinician so that more importantly, we can not only train people and equip them, but start to give frontline nurses and surgeons like you agency in in the day-to-day stresses of modern medicine. And, and, you know, that's my, my passionate belief is that changed my life and helped me be far more effective as an operator and hopefully working with folks like you, that's the the data story we're looking to bring to life. But I'm going to pause there and glad to answer questions later.
1: Brian, thank you. I mean, it's just uh, so exciting to have you and Arena Labs involved in this, in this endeavor. And one of the goals that we have over the next year is to create one or two cohorts of surgeons that have an interest in utilizing this platform as as sort of a trial and we can learn from that and and, and start to take that to other people. So it's something to be watching for in the future as we evolve the wellness uh, platform here. Thank you very much, Brian. All right, our next speaker is Cindy Harrington, a good friend and an associate professor of cardiothoracic surgery and a pediatric cardiac uh, surgeon at the University of Southern California. She did her training at the University of Minnesota, which is where I got to know her when I was on faculty. So we got to know each other extremely well. And and it's safe to say that Cindy is a force of nature. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) After she trained in pediatric cardiac surgery at Children's Hospital, uh, she came back to Minnesota for a while, but then returned and uh, went on the faculty at USC. uh, And she now holds the Ryan Winston chair in transplant cardiology and is the program director for the congenital training program. Cindy has a seriously deep passion for the world of women in our specialty and also in diversity and equity in the workplace. At USC, she's chaired the task force for equity and workplace, equity in the workplace at Children's Hospital since 2018. And she's also the executive director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Children's Hospital. But even more important is that Cindy is a mother of two beautiful young girls, Olivia and Emma. And this has fueled her passion for helping other women, cardiothoracic surgeons who are mothers. Cindy, take it away.
3: Thank you, Mike. And so um, I'd like to leave the screen up with my adorable children, but um, I am going to um, share my screen because I do have a couple of slides. I too um, am humbled um, by being involved in this group. But I will, I'll tell you that when I heard um, what was going on, I called Mike and I said, uh, yeah, I, I want in, like, I want in. And like, just listening to what we've talked about already this morning, isn't it exciting, like this afternoon, isn't it exciting? Like, there's a lot of excitement. And so I really feel like uh, this is going to be amazing. So I'm going to keep talking as I assume that you can see that and so I'm going to talk today a little bit about the myth of balance. So this is who I am and Mike went over all of the spaces that I that I lead, I will make one small correction. I, I started the DEI office here at CHLA and then when it became a full time job I decided I did not want to become a full time DEI person so I am in gender equity. Um, and have a lot of responsibilities there and we have um, filled the position with a full-time DEI person which is great. Today, I am gonna speak from the perspective uh, of all my identities. I am a woman uh, in pediatric cardiac surgery and I'm mom. Now, I just want you to know that as I'm speaking in this perspective, it does not diminish one iota the uh, stress and resilience that my um, male colleagues who are also fathers uh, need, have and need. Um, I'm surrounded by really amazing uh, partners that are all men. They all have kids and grandkids. And I do understand that some of the stressors I'm gonna talk about they too experience, so I'm not here to diminish that, but I am here to serve the role that I that I am in and I'm gonna speak from my, my perspective. And I feel that the pandemic has really exaggerated the gender divide and it deserves some discussion and it deserves some some special investigation. So I'm gonna start by talking about, if I can get my thing going here, talking about this article that was the New York Times in December of 2019. about Erica Rangel, who is a surgeon in the Harvard system. I think she's an assistant professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. And uh, the chair of pediatric surgery sent it to me at four in the morning. And of course, I ignored it until I got done with my cases for the day. And when I read it, if you have not read it, please write this down and please go look at it because it is so well written. And it talks about how women are still being dissuaded from entering surgical specialties by um, I assume well-intentioned men who feel like if you want to have a family uh, this is not a place to have a family. And it goes through some life experiences that uh, she has had and that other women have had. Um, does a great job but, uh, of, of outlining that. So I think it's a, it's a worthy read. This, and this is pre-pandemic. So when I read this, I went to the New York Times because I was gonna comment on it because this is me, I'm living in the space. And when I got there, I was shocked by the amount of hate commentary that was on the New York Times about this. People saying things like, "Well, why would I send myself or a loved one or my child to a woman surgeon when all they're going to worry about is their own children? As if men don't worry about their children too when there's something that's going wrong at home or some a stressor at home." It was really, it was really not. It was really bad commentary. So I lifted it and took it to LinkedIn where I actually have a bit of a presence and felt more comfortable commenting. And I put it on LinkedIn and I attached this to this piece. And so, and I believe every word that I've written here, my daughters are the most amazing part of my life, but becoming a congenital heart surgeon was the most intelligent decision that I have ever made. And I do believe that both of those things can can exist together. I don't mention here, but like my daughters will say, Mama, I miss you when you're at work. And I re- respond back to them almost immediately. And honey, I miss you when you're at school. I really do. And then they begin to understand, oh, I have a thing I do during the daytime. And so does my mom. But to, tonight, when we all come home, we'll do things as a family. And this is kind of the way our life goes. Um, I also do, and, and I will tell you, they, within an hour of this going to LinkedIn, they pulled it, sent me a notification, and they had taken this post with like five or six other posts to put out as like an editorial, and, and, and they ran it around LinkedIn. And it was very interesting, but I was literally, of these six people, I was the only surgeon, the only female surgeon that they pulled into that space. Everybody else were people that studied or worked with or um, had written on the lives of, of the surgeons. And so the next part, it's really important. I, I honestly think that we can't change our system from the outside, and I might be wrong. You can push back if you think otherwise. But I feel like those of us who are in it need to be the ones to stimulate the change. That's also very stressful to be in that role and have to to do that. But if you ask my daughters, what does your mommy do at work? They will tell you she's taking care of babies with broken hearts. My six-year-old can give you a whole thing about what that means to her. And she's proud of that. And so... Um, don't, don't get me wrong. I have plenty of mommy guilt at, at moments in my life, but to have my daughters like, you know, play doctor and, and Olivia say something like, we have to prep for the OR let's have ECMO on standby realizing I probably said that 500 times in front of them, not 500, but, but, um, is a sense of pride for them. And for me that they get that what I do is important and they need to see me do this. And so, for those of you who are sitting in a space like I am, I'm just gonna ask you to give yourself a little grace. And I know the mommy shame and the, and the mommy guilt can be significant, but your kids are seeing you do something amazing and your kids need to see you do that. Now let's talk a little bit about, about balance. Um, I'm gonna try to help reframe balance for everybody who's on the call. Um, there are trade-offs. I'm not going to tell you that any of this is easy, um, and sometimes it's not going to feel fair. Um, but this, as you know, is the scales of justice, right? And, in, and this is actually called a balance scale. So in order for this apparatus to work, the plates need to be basically balanced or very close to balanced. For this, if, actually, if you tip it too far, the whole thing kind of falls apart. And so this cannot be our definition of balance. So if this is your definition of balance, I'm gonna push back on you a little bit and say, think about this for a second. I view balance as a verb, it's an action. So this to me is what our balance as surgeons look like. The tightrope walker is trying to stay on that rope um, and he's using the bar to lower his center of gravity and to maintain his position on the rope. Now, sometimes the bar is really very even, but sometimes, depending on the environment around him and his response to that, that might have to that pull might have to tip thirty seventy, or forty five fifty five, or sixty forty, in order to stay on that rope. Whatever percentage your bar is at in that moment, just realize that that's what's right for you in that moment, that it's an action. It is not steady. It will change and it will change based on external factors and it's okay. The, uh, sometimes it needs to be, for my life, it needs to be 30, 70. Sometimes I get a 50, 50 and I'm like, good day there. But it, it, it constantly moves and constantly changes because of all of the spaces that we sit in our world. So this to me is more what balance looks like. And all I would ask you to do is to give yourself grace. Give yourself the space to realize that it doesn't have to be 50-50, that nobody is looking for you to define perfect, that you're powerful at work and you're powerful at home, and just take a breath and let yourself be in in that space. I think a lot of times that, especially when it comes to mommy guilt or even spousal guilt, Um, that the story you're telling yourself in your head might be actually more severe than what the reality is. I could tell myself that my daughters are disappointed because I wasn't, wasn't home early or that their nanny had to take them to that play date and I wasn't able to do that. But then you'll walk by and you'll catch them talking about playing doctor and putting on little scrubs just like yours, because they want to look just like you or your six-year-old will say, I want to grow up to do what mommy does. I want to go to the hospital and take care of the babies. So I'm just asking that you give yourself a little grace. So my last slide, that's Olivia uh, when she went to her first STS meeting in, uh, in January of 2015. And the speaker at the Women in thoracic surgery meeting that night was, was dynamite. And so I showed up with uh, Olivia tucked in my arm and we, I stood in the back, I rocked her and I watched the speaker and the women turned around. They were like, oh, what did Harrington just do? Yeah, I brought my child to the STS meeting and I brought her to a speaker and guess what? The world didn't fall apart. It was actually really quite great. And I have noticed since that time that other women have done the same thing. And so I am a pediatric cardiac surgeon, but I'm also that. And so look, just, but I do have to give myself grace because every once in a while I have to tip it to 3070. All right, I am going to stop sharing my screen because that's my last slide. And then I will turn this back over to Mike. And again, super excited about the stuff that's coming uh, along the way from this group. You get it's it's going to be great for us.
1: Gosh, thank you, Cindy. That was uh, <clears throat> heartfelt and wonderful. Uh, and one of the things that really hit me was when you said to your daughter, "And I'm going to miss you too." Uh, you know, I wish we had had that in our armamentarium because. My wife is a high-risk obstetrician and worked like crazy and the guilt and struggle was really substantial. But the irony is that the sense that we had that we were hurting our children by all of our work was really not borne out. I mean, they're so proud of her mother and it really, I think it was more of a, as as Cindy alludes to, the struggle we have in our own minds about the whole process. So kudos, Cindy, and we're delighted you're part of this enterprise. All right, our next speaker is Dr. Wayne Sotile. And uh, he's a clinical psychologist and he hails from Louisiana. And I don't want you to hold his uh, accent against him or if he uses some kind of Cajun joke, uh, don't hold that against him. He is quite funny. Uh, But this guy is Mr. Resilience Defined. For 40 years, he has worked in the world of resilience after having obtained his PhD uh, at the University of South Carolina and a medical psychology internship at Duke. Ever since that time he's dedicated literally dedicated himself to the world of healthcare and the mental health of physicians and other high performers. In 2013 he founded the Center for Resilience and the Sotil Center for Resilience in Davidson, North Carolina. Wayne has written or co-authored 12 books on the topics of resili- on the topic of resilience in medical professionals and on medical marriages. And his work has actually been featured many times in national print and television, including appearances on Good Morning America, Dateline NBC, CBS This Morning. And get a load of this, he's delivered more than 8,000 invited addresses and workshops to corporate and medical audiences, all on the topic, uh, generally on the topic of resilience. So it's, it's a real honor that we've got somebody of this caliber and depth of experience joining our wellness task force and I'll turn it over to Wayne. Thank you,
4: Michael. It's my honor to be a part of this, uh, believe me. And thanks to our buddy, Kevin Lobdell, for putting this all together. Let me begin with the backdrop concept. Life is about love and work. That might be the only thing Oh Sigmund Freud got right in his cocaine-induced haze, but he nailed that one. My career has been about studying both horns in that dilemma for physicians, medical families, and medical organizations. And what I know is that resilience is not um, a given. It doesn't come with being tough or strong or learning to go numb and stay numb in ways that Michael uh, outlined occur as a a function of survival skills you learn along the way of of going through a, a residency in medical training and fellowship. In fact, Chip Campbell, the dean of faculty at, um, in Ann Arbor many years ago said something I always loved when researching resilience in surgeons. He said, medical training teaches you well how to practice medicine. It doesn't do a great job of teaching you how to live your life as a busy surgeon. What we know now uh, as a function of uh, 25, 30, 40, in one instance, 70 year prospective studies examining who gets through hard times and comes out stronger and better. That's what resilience is about. As an individual family, a team, and as a medical professional, we know is that resilience is about a set of teachable and learnable tactics and strategies, coping skills of the sorts that Brian outlined around self-regulation. And it's also about a set of philosophies that help us correct course and stay on course of the sorts that that, uh, Cindy outlined relative to women in medicine, but also that apply to men in medicine. We know that resilience is not an individual matter. My wife, Mary, who was my partner in practice forever, uh, and I began writing about this in the 90s saying, you're never gonna have resilient uh, physicians and surgeons until you have resilient families in medicine, and you're never going to have resilient medical families until you allow physicians, you facilitate physicians working in organizations that allow you to work more efficiently and effectively in an uh, in arena that allows for collaboration and collegiality. What we know is that there's a crucial interplay between those variables, and I'll talk about this particularly as it relates to medical families. Now, I can talk about it in terms of individual resilience, but my contribution tonight is gonna be, let's talk about medical family, however you define family, however you define long-term intimate covenant relationship. I'm very passionate about being respectful of cultural diversity. And whether we're talking about extended family relationships, you and your marriage, you and your covenant lifetime partner, you and your children, I'm gonna encourage you to consider that the three vital variables that differentiate who thrives and who doesn't are captured in this acronym. You gotta manage your EAR, E-A-R, for resilience. It's all about energy, attitude, and relationships. After all, burnout is what happens when the energy it takes to cope with uh, people demands in your life depletes and doesn't rejuvenate with your typical recovery strategies. And, and I've spent the first 40 years of my career helping propagate two concepts. I'm going to spend the rest of my career helping correct. One, the mythical balanced life that Cindy referred to. We got it wrong. The second is burnout hysteria. What we focus on magnifies. What we know is that no one's got a perfectly balanced life. Now, to mix our metaphors, I love Cindy's tightrope. Uh, analogy or metaphor. I say picture yourself walking across a stream on rocks. There are four big boulders, work, family, intimate relationship, and self-care. Key here is to engage where your foot's going. If you don't, you're going to fall off. If you're going to be at work, be all in at work. Enjoy your work. Then secondly, don't just stand on one rock for too long. Switch rocks. You're going to be home, be home with your family congruently and don't stay addicted to the thing that keeps us in business, which is, uh, these, uh, uh, our devices that keep us distracted from each other. You're in your intimate relationship, having date night, tell the babysitter don't call unless there's a lot of blood and visible tissue damage. We need a break from these honey pies. You're in the fourth arena. You're, you're, doing recovery, you're doing mind, body, spiritual renewal, get over the new age guilt we help create with our mythical balanced life. No one's got a balanced life. The second energy drainer we created is related to the phenomenon What we focus on magnifies. And we've exaggerated the problem of of burnout. First of all, it's not a diagnosis of a chronic disease. Only about 3% of surgeons have chronic long-term burnout. So routinely ask yourself the question, did I just make a deposit or a withdrawal in the ways I am thinking, in that which I'm focusing on, in every sip I take, every breath I relish or rush through? Did I make a deposit or withdrawal in that internal energy reserve? The second thing we've got to remember is that if we live our lives in harmony with our inner values, it generates energy for us. If we get disengaged from that lifestyle, we drain energy. Also key is to generate and harvest daily uplifts. It's not about the daily hassles, it's about the daily uplifts. We know from 40 years of research in positive psychology, and we've got 10 evidence-based uplifts. We train people to learn to note, to generate, to harvest and re-energize. Now, what we focus on magnifies, this gets us to the four attitudes to drive in your family, to drive in your teams, and to train yourself to think in terms of, and none of these come naturally. One, meaning. Meaning is the antidote antidote to uh, distress and despair. But familiarity blurs our vision for meaning in what we're doing. The second is wonderment, seeing the familiar and unfamiliar ways. And with the pandemic shutdown, we got in wonderment in our lives. And it exposed some of the things we forgot to continue to appreciate about each other, in our families, in our teams, in our privilege of doing our work. It also exposed some things we've learned to blur our vision to. Like we do put our families at risk in the work we do. And it is heroic work in the routines of times. The third is the psychology of incorporation, not discontinuity. My life was good, my career was good, then this happened, now my life sucks but rather our life, our journey, my career is about a lot of good things. And now I'm incorporating this too into the fold. And then finally, the the attitude of realistic optimism, not pie in the sky, rose colored optimism, and certainly not cynical pessimism, which failed to generate adaptive coping. Realistic optimism is about acknowledging the challenges we face, but maintaining an attitude of hope. And hope is the oil that fuels the engine of resilience. We need not to burn it up with mismanaged uh, uh, stress thinking, with mismanaged self-regulation, nor with the wrong mental maps like chasing the mythical balanced life. And we certainly need not to burn it up with festering relationship tensions. Relative to attitude, ask yourself routinely, what am I thinking and spreading? Because your attitudes and emotions are contagious. Now this gets us to the R in my acronym, my ear acronym relationships. As go your relationships, so will go your resilience. The longest term study we have in resilience, a 70 year and unfolding Harvard study, says whether or not you have a 2 a.m. friend is gonna be the most powerful predictor of how long you live controlling other factors. Of someone you can call with confidence any morning, two o'clock in the morning, and know that they will, will uh, help you. When the pandemic happened, we started having a renewed intimacy in families. I've done over 100 programs virtually since March of 2020. And worldwide, people from 65 countries have reported a renewed intimacy for a while. It's like the honeymoon but it's not made to last. Then a lot of people drifted to the opposite end into chaos and conflict. At minimum, we coach people to go for functional partnerships in harmony, recognizing that good work is the key to a matrix of variables that drive reasonable satisfaction with the life you're living and with your work-life imbalance. And I emphasize imbalance. Our research has shown definitively short of working 90 hours a week consistently, it's not how much you work that will determine whether or not your family likes you. It's your mood when you come home from work. There's an inverse relationship we found in research with surgeons that go like your your loved ones will tank in their satisfaction with you in their lives, inversely with how frequently you come home angry about work, gossiping negatively about people at work, bad-mouthing, the place you work are freaking out about what's happening in healthcare writ large. So it's not enough for us just to show up. What we've got to do is create shared and articulated visions of a desired future. We've got to recognize the special challenges for different cohorts through the generations, certainly for women in healthcare, but also for aging families who have gotten tired of the wait and tell process. And over 80% of physicians, male and female, now say that work family distress is one of their primary factors that are eroding intimacy. We've also got to get on the same page with when, within family role agreement of looking at what are our respective notions of our work psychology. Is working hard a good thing or a dirty word in our family? And as individuals, as couples, as families of all sorts, and in our workplaces, we've got to become ambassadors of daily uplifts to counter the inevitable hassles. So thank you for letting me join you. i close with one of our Sentinel concepts, heroes create safe spaces for other people. We coined that phrase in 1999 when writing about medical families. You unsung heroes, males and females alike, physicians and non-physicians alike, who sacrifice unlike any other profession. Three times more physicians work 60 plus hours a week than any other profession we've studied. Over 22% work 80 plus hours a week. That means a lot of missed birthdays, a lot of missed date nights. Thank you for what you do. It's a privilege to work with you.
1: Well, Wayne, thank you so much. And I think as you can see from our speakers tonight, we've got a tremendous lineup uh, working for us. In the wellness task force and I, I'm, I'm certain it's going to bring a lot of valuable content and and things to our, our membership. Wayne really touched on so many important things in there and it really there's there's a couple things I want to highlight and that is the you know the rock analogy that he talked about the and I, I refer to that as the ability to toggle and um, you know so if you're coming home and you've had a bad day now it's one thing to Come in and kind of briefly tell somebody you've kind of had a bad day. But it's another thing to come in in a bad mood because that's an emotional contagion and that spreads. Uh, We are very prone to emotional contagions and it's poisonous. And that ability to toggle and be mindful is rooted really for me in the mindfulness practices. So, you know, one of the things about the wellness practices like gratitude, uh, mindfulness, uh, and the like, and the connection that Wayne talked about in the Harvard study is that they can seem like sort of fuzzy, not, not so uh, impactful, uh, you know, things to do. And, you know, okay, go meditate, relieve stress. But in fact, meditation has much more profound consequences in the daily interactions you have with other people and how you manage yourself. So that's why I view that as one of the really important skills, whether you do it through meditation or just practice being present and the ability to toggle between things. And just as a side note, there's a wonderful book called The Molecule of More by Daniel Lieberman. He's already agreed to be on the podcast, but basically it's an exposition about dopamine and another set of reward molecules called the here and now reward molecules. And it's oxytocin, uh, endorphins, uh, and, uh, and the endocannabinoids. And these molecules are reward molecules, and they are generated when we do things that are within arm's reach petting a dog, cuddling with someone, enjoying nature, those kinds of things that are in the here and now release those reward chemicals. And in the dopamine driven lives that we tend to live, that stuff is ignored. And unless you can toggle and actually switch into that kind of reward system process, you will end up suffering over time. So you really touched on a lot that is uh, true to uh, my understanding of this world. I also wanna take a moment before we answer any questions or uh, is to thank, as Wayne did, Kevin Lobdell because Kevin's a friend of mine. We worked together back at the University of Minnesota years ago and I reached out to him uh, before this task force and we renewed our our relationship and our friendship. And it was Kevin that directed me to both Brian and Wayne. And I think that the depth that these uh, individuals bring to the wellness task force and what we're gonna be able to provide for the STS in this arena is going to be greatly enhanced by their work and their presence in this thing. So, I mean, I'm literally delighted and honored, and I just want to really thank Kevin and Shanda for this opportunity and for their support. So, with that having been said, I think we got some time for questions if people uh, want to want to ask.
2: Hey,
4: Brian, can you hear? Can you hear me, Brian? Yeah, I got you. Somebody has a question. How long do uh, participants wear the monitors?
2: Yeah, so Rusty, uh, the, the program we've built right now is at a minimum six months, and most of the time our, our, what we build built is 12 months of both content and, and sensor wearing along with data analytics. The reason we do that is, you know, particularly for folks who are not as seasoned, either medical learners or early stage, the arc that we're introducing people to moves through individual skills around performance and resilience and human factors. It moves into team dynamics and then leadership. Uh, and so we move that through a, a, a one-year curriculum experience and along the way, an increasing level of sophistication around understanding one's own data and patterns and behavior. Um, and if it's in a team environment, that allows us to get far better analytics over the course of a year.
4: Great. I got a, a personal, uh, someone sent to my personal email the question uh, is, what about the effect of growing up in a medical family? Now, this has been a, a point of fascination for us for decades there's virtually no literature of any well-controlled sort. There's anecdotal literature on the effects of growing up. And I would pose a rhetorical question to you all. Uh, How many of you had a physician um, as a parent? One of the things we know from our research, if, and we've done a number of national surveys on this, having had a physician as a parent increases the resilience of physicians because it helps normalize some of the struggle you go through. Secondly, what we've noted is a bimodal distribution anecdotally. On one hand uh, are people who say, I don't know what my kids are gonna do, but it's not gonna be when they grow up, they're not gonna do medicine because medicine's like the unrelenting angry mistress that keeps taking the physician away from us. (laughs) On the other hand, we run into some families that have had generations of physicians and the family honors, it's like like Cindy's uh, family. They, the, the rhetoric we use when we if you have children, what, what you say about each other's roles respectively, you're shaping pieces of your children's hearts about their their not just their minds, their attitudes toward their their other parent, but honoring and we're 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 proud that you know moms are gonna miss something because she's home saving babies' lives and that's how we roll. So we're going to videotape your dance recital, and we'll all watch it together after mama gets some sleep. That's what you're talking about. Now, the same has to be for the surgeon to honor the role of the non-physician life mate if you've got one. It's not that my stress is more important than your stress. So we don't have great data, uh, empirical data on what it's like to grow up in a medical family. Other than if you did, it increased the odds you're going to be able to endure the the, uh, the wounds and the challenges that come with a uh, life in medicine better.
3: So we do have one question I'm going to read <clears throat> from the chat. Um, if you were to point to a single most important skill for a physician to avoid burnout, what would that be?
4: There's it, It's definitive. It is engage robustly in work and enjoy it. Now that the sub uh, text there is, You've got to learn to counter daily hassles with daily uplifts. Notice what brings you joy. Notice moments of gratitude. or Develop the the self-observation ritual when you're waiting for the elevator, when you're driving to work, when you're driving home, when you're chatting with your family or with your colleagues. Talk about these uplifts. Moments of joy, gratitude. What was an opportunity for serenity? The bombs aren't always flying. Let me recalibrate using brine skills. uh, what brought you hope? With wonderment, seeing the familiar and unfamiliar ways, what was what inspired you? What was gave you a sense of awe? What gave you a pride of affiliation about being at work today? You know, who's most acutely in wonderment. Any physician who just returned from a medical missions trip, uh, often they leave cussing and screaming uh, about what they didn't have in the OR. Uh, the latest little gadget. They do surgery in a tent with a hammer and a chisel and flies running around. And on the way home, on the medical missions trip, on the way home, they realize on oh, my worst days, I work in a miracle zone. That's, that's wonderment. So if you can counter daily hassles with daily uplifts, stay in a reasonably self-regulated zone be in a more positive mood state. You do better work, you connect better with other people, and then you're in a better mood when you go home. It creates an cycle of resilience.
1: Yeah, I just want to make a note about that. Just the, the power of those small things, and Wayne has said it multiple times, what you focus on grows. Uh, and it's so true. And if if uh, one of the things that, you know, my, my wife and I, we we had a rather transactional kind of relationship prior to all of this, uh, we were so busy. I mean, it just became that way. It was kind of the cultural norm. And once I realized the power of gratitude and I saw the science behind it, it was very awkward. I started out with, you know, saying, you know finding little things to appreciate and then saying, thank you. Uh, and I still remember the look on the face because it was it just felt so unusual. And the thing is that that has grown dramatically. And it's it's that, that one practice has changed the cultural dynamic of our household. And our daughter has created a, a beautiful box. You can write on a card at the at the dinner table where we put something in the box about what we're grateful for for that day. Incredible uh, power that gratitude has in that regard. It's just, it's really incredible. That's all I can say. It's, it's, it's something. Cindy, you got
4: a question about uh, institutional stuff.
3: Yeah, I did and so and I actually did respond to that uh, person so the question uh, had to do with um, recommendations for how we actually change um, our uh, our pra- our you know our society or our other surgeons from the inside um, and especially what a medical student or a resident could do so I do feel like uh, medical students and um Trainees are particularly vulnerable in this situation, and so I gave the recommendations I gave was, and this would be an entire talk actually, um, to stand up to microaggressions and don't let the microaggressions slide, especially if you are the most um, senior pro- female in the room. Um, to look uh, at those who are following you in training and protect them and to to elevate other women. Um, But these are long, big chunks of discussion. And so I'd be more than happy to take that offline and and talk about it. But there are things that you can do um, that will help uh, uh, level the playing field and just let people know that that this is not what goes on in your operating room. So we can definitely have that discussion further.
4: There's also a question about taking resilience training. Is it feasible to take resilience training in a medical education? That's where some of the most exciting resilience training is happening incidentally. Um, I, I would like to say for humanistic reasons and perhaps so, but it's also true. We now know it's a quality and safety issue. Lancet had an article several years ago saying we need to put matters of well-being and ill-being in the quality and safety score column for medical. As stress goes up unmitigated, people get rude and dumb, and we can't afford rude and dumb in our families nor in our workplaces. One of the most exciting projects I was involved in for five years, I met monthly with a group of neurosurgeons, neurosurgery residents, and APPs. Gary Simmons, my co-author in the latest, latest books, and I, is chief of neurosurgery, uh, at Roanoke uh, in the Caribbean clinic. He's now retired, but he and I met and drove a resilience curriculum. Now, the sub-message here is this is not a one-off. This is not a grand round. Grand rounds will raise awareness and get people motivated until next Tuesday, next time somebody frustrates them and then they stop self-regulating. To, this is Brian's work. About you, it, Resilience is about, in, in Michael's work, you got to develop the muscle. And it requires a lot of discipline and a lot of repetition, but it's a very, very doable and, and trainable uh, things.
2: Yes. I would say,
4: I want to say one more thing to, to Cindy's work, because I think we're all in this together, that when when the Me Too movement was cresting, my two grown daughters sat my two sons-in-law and me down and said, it's not enough for you to just quietly be good men. You need to grow a pair and start speaking out against microaggressions much less blatant aggressions against women i think that's needed in the workplace too that is ba- not how we treat each other here
3: basically your, your your daughter created allies by having that conversation with you and telling you that you're the good guys you need to step into it that she they basically created an ally which is which is is fantastic it, it's a whole i mean we should Mike, think about having conversations like that in some way because it is a whole conversation, and uh, and it, it it too requires muscle and courage
0: yes.
1: to
3: stand up and say I am not tolerating that any longer, and this is gonna stop. So it, it's a it is a thing.
4: I would I, one final underscoring. Why does it matter? Are we off topic? Hell no, we're not off topic if the the way the two of you treat each other at work today is gonna affect me in my mood when I go home. Therefore, you're messing with my family. And I'm letting you, you know, if someone enters the temple wielding a knife, first take the knife away from them,
1: Mm -hmm.
4: some wise person said. And um, I think that we all have to band together to create better workplaces defined in a lot of ways. is more doable work, you know, an extro- electronic health record that works is not a nightmare, but also it's, a, it's an arena of collaboration, collegiality, and teamwork so that we get good work done and feel good about it at the end of the day. We go home and spread the feel good, get supported for that good work, come back the next day and do it
1: again. That's the resilience spiral we want. Well, I couldn't agree more, Wayne, but you know, the problem is the the environmental world out there is challenging, right? And you will get these microaggressions. You will have those bad interactions. And so for me, the mindfulness piece is the ability to recognize that they're a human being that's struggling. They've got their own set of issues. They haven't been trained. They're not doing the resilience work, whatever it is. And I can separate myself from that and let that go and be present to all of these things and then go home in a decent mood despite the challenges of the day. And that that's a muscle that can be built. Of course, there's always people that will tip you over the edge uh, for sure. Uh, but it's, it's something that can be trained for sure.
4: I agree. And, you
1: know, I can hear a lot of folks thinking, yeah, but what, what, how about,
4: yeah, but in one of our, we issued the resilience challenge. Look, you had me at hello. I know they are 90% of the problem, whoever they are if only family loved you more, and if the electronic work record damn thing worked better, and if other colleagues would show up, shut up, do their work and ask for more, oh yeah, it'd all be better. But in the meantime, even if they are 90% of the problem, what 10% are you willing to own? That's the resilience challenge. Now the final, now I'm gonna shut up. None of us mean to trivialize this. This is complicated. These are complicated times. Your life is complicated. But think about any of you have been through recovery, you manifest the resilience paradox the more complex the issue the more important it is to pay attention to the fundamentals of mind body spiritual in relationship health that's what resilience that's where your 10 percent lies
1: well it's uh 703 and i've certainly enjoyed this this has been just fantastic so I want to thank all of you for your participation and uh, I look forward to our work together in the future here. Thank you very much. Thank you all.
0: Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Madison. Thank you to all our panelists today for your participation and insight. We invite you to become a member of STS if you're not one already. You'll enjoy a variety of benefits and opportunities to help you grow professionally, plus discounts on educational offerings like this course. Learn more at sts.org slash membership. Please join us on June 3rd for the second webinar in our leadership series, Building Your Practice and Your Brand. The event will feature accomplished early career and mid-career surgeons offering tips on how to build a foundation for a successful career and is exclusively for STS members. Learn more and RSVP on the STS website. Save the date for a very special event, Ask STS, a town hall with surgeon leaders STS President Sean Grandin and other society leaders will lead an interactive conversation with members about the most pressing issues facing cardiothoracic surgeons in STS. Mark your calendars for Thursday, June 17th. Thank you and have a great night.